So we're still hanging out in Revelation 14. And uh, we're on verse 19 and 20. Revelation 14, verses 19 and 20. And in verse 19 it says, So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, I know that we've spent a great deal of time on this passage, but I feel really strongly that the Holy Spirit wants us to press in a little bit more on this particular Sunday because we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And we've looked at the fact that there is judgment for sin and sinners in the context of Revelation 14. And a lot of people don't want to talk about judgment. And and even in the church, we're guilty of trying to Evade that topic. We want to have a positive message, and we want to be a blessing and so forth. Well, there is a positive message, but it's in the context of judgment. You've got to know the bad news before the good news makes any sense, right? The central message of the Bible is how God himself has resolved the problem of sin. He's resolved the problem of judgment. And it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we consider the history of God working with humanity, we recognize that his plan to redeem and restore was funneled through a particular people. He brought the nation of Israel into existence by a miracle. The birth of Abraham, or to Abraham and Sarah, was by promise. Her womb was as good as dead. But by a miracle she conceived and she bore Isaac. And then to Isaac came Jacob and his name was changed to Israel. By the way, if you're wondering about name changes of the church, well, go through and see how many people had a change of name in the Bible. Jacob went to Israel, right? And Abram was Abraham and Sarai became Sarah and... uh, Simon became Peter, and Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. There's a lot of name changes, and uh, so don't be concerned about that. Uh, But to rejoice in a name that perpetuates what God is doing in our midst. So she bore Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob became Israel, and Jacob's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those tribes, Judah, was designated where the kingship would come. And David became a pinnacle of the kingship. And then from David's lineage was born Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's a ton of promises, a ton of things in there. I've preached on it before, but if you're interested, just trace it in the Scripture and see how important the name the Son of David is when it is attributed to Jesus. Now, I want us to go into just a tad more history. Hopefully, you know that Jacob's family had to go into Egypt during a very terrible famine. And they settled there, and they actually thrived for a long time until a pharaoh came along who hated them. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't care about what Joseph had done in actually saving the nation of Egypt and the 
known world at the time. He didn't care about that. All he saw was that these Israelites were prospering and they were multiplying and they were thriving and they saw them as a threat and he decided that he had to put a cap on this and enslaved them and by force made them slaves to do his bidding. And this enforced slavery lasted for centuries. And finally, God brought them a deliverer by the name of Moses, right? And Moses brought a message to the Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh, we know, stubbornly refused. And so God unleashed ten plagues. That's a sermon in itself. But each one of those plagues was targeted at the false gods of Egypt. And the last plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God instructed Israel to take an unblemished lamb from the flocks, and they were to slay it, they were to spread its blood on the doorposts and lintels of their houses, and then they were instructed to wait inside their houses and eat that lamb to be roasted, And they were to eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And while doing so, the death angel passed through Egypt and brought death to all the firstborn in every household except those who put the lamb's blood on their door. And they were told by God to celebrate this Passover as the angel of death passed over They were to celebrate this Passover as a memorial to the deliverance from slavery for all generations to come. And devout Jews to this day still celebrate Passover. And it was this Passover celebration meal that Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room. And it was there that he took bread and wine and literally fulfilled and transformed This tradition. In Luke's gospel, the 22nd chapter, beginning at verse 14, we read Luke's account of this last meal, this Passover that Jesus celebrated. Luke wrote, when the hour came, he took his place at table with the apostles. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until there is fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you that from this time on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread. And he said a blessing and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body which will be given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which will be shed for you. Let's make the connection now to Revelation 14, 19, where the sickle is put in and the grapes are 
scattered and put into the winepress. The meal, the Passover meal, was to have at least these four elements in it. A lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and wine. The lamb was the sacrifice that bought Israel's freedom and by its blood being made visible on the doorposts. This death was necessary so that the firstborn of Israel could live. Bitter herbs reminded them of the toil and suffering as slaves. This corresponds to the bondage of sin. Like Israel in Egypt, they were held captive to do the will of a wicked king. They were not free to go where they wished. They couldn't go and establish their own livelihood. And sin, likewise, captivates the soul. And though we may want to be better people, we regularly disappoint ourselves by giving in to temptations and behaviors that we can't or won't break from. We have habitual sins that we would be ashamed if people knew them, including complete addictions, some of which now involve technology and the need to be known or to know things. The bread was unleavened for two reasons. At the Exodus, God said, Make it without yeast and eat it in haste because you must be ready to leave Egypt in a hurry and escape the clutches of Pharaoh. So they didn't have time for the bread to rise. Just make the bread and bake it because you're going to need to eat it quickly. But leaven in the Bible is used as a symbol of how sin works through a person or through a group of people. As it affects the dough, it permeates everything it touches. Unleavened bread would become symbolic of keeping sin out of one's life completely. Even a little tiny bit contaminates the whole, both as individuals and the church. And then finally, the wine, the fruit of the vine Symbolic of remembrance and joyful celebration. But it would also become the emblem of blood. The blood of God's Son. It signifies that something must die, just like the Passover lamb had to die for the salvation of the firstborn. So the lamb of God would die for sinners. And so when we think of the Lord's Supper, we remember it as the blood that was shed for us, the blood of God's Son. And so here's the connection. In Revelation 14, the Son of Man, Jesus, reaps a harvest of wheat. Now, wheat is what bread is made of, right? Wheat represents God's people being brought into God's storehouse. And Jesus is God in very nature and being, becoming a man. And he took on flesh, the wheat or the bread from heaven. Jesus was and is totally pure, without sin, 
holy and perfect. He was the unleavened bread. And he said, I am the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. In John chapter 6, verses 48 to 51, he said, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so we see that there's a connection between the wheat and the grapes. Clear back in Exodus and all the way forward at the end of time in Revelation 14. The harvest of God's people being the wheat signifies that they're clean, that they're redeemed, that they're restored and forgiven because God himself came into our world and offered himself on the cross as the perfect Lamb of God. And he suffered the bitterness of rejection He suffered people's hatred. He suffered the hatred of the priests and the politicians who were threatened by him. But Jesus absorbs the full wrath of God, not just people. He absorbs the wrath of God against sin and sinners. And his death, like the Passover lamb, made possible life for all who are sentenced to death. Without the blood of the Passover lamb, the firstborn were doomed. And likewise, every sinner is doomed to death and judgment and would be in the cluster of the grapes, cast into the winepress of God, except that there was a lamb who died for them. And shed his blood for their souls. Do you know in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. It says the wages of sin is death. You know that? But the verse doesn't stop there. The wages of sin is death. But what? The free gift of God is what? Eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when he took the cup, Jesus, he actually changed the Passover tradition when he announced this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus entered into the winepress of God's wrath as a substitute for us. We belong in the cluster of grapes of Revelation 14, 19, not as the wheat. That's that's where we belong, except... That Jesus took the wrath for us. This is the new covenant in my blood. Our sins have created chaos and contributed to the mess of ungodliness and rebellion that exists in our world. But whether our sins are great or small in our own eyes, we participated in rebellion against our Creator. Who alone is good and righteous, truthful and wise all the time. 
but because of what Jesus did, we do not have to fear. He entered into our reality as the bread of life. He shed his blood on the cross by entering into God's just wrath on our behalf. He was crushed for our iniquities. If you care to follow, you may do so, but I want you to hear carefully a great prophecy of Isaiah 53 and how it just lays out for us what we're talking about. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom... The stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will allot to him a portion with the great. And, they, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. <laughs> Is there good news here? I hope to shout. Verses 10 and 12 tell of the reward of his suffering. He would have offspring, not children born of natural means, but you and me. That God would have 
sons and daughters because of what he did. He will justify the many, making the sinner to have a standing before God as if we'd never sinned. (laughs) He makes the sinner stand. He bore the sin of many. He interceded for the transgressors, meaning that he stood in the gap between a holy God and sinful people. Now, here's the point of it all. All this was done for every person who ever lived. The only thing that keeps a person from enjoying the benefits of the work of Jesus is unbelief. To reject his offer for any reason is to let the suffering and death of God himself be wasted. And the penalty for unbelief is to endure the winepress alone and suffer the consequences of sin yourself. Well, what does unbelief look like? It's when I say, I've got to do it for God. Or he needs my help in saving my soul. Instead of, I surrender, use me. Instead of, you you did it all, and I want to give all to you. So there's a table that's set before us. It's always been provided. But the issue is whether we will partake for his glory or whether we'll pretend. And I don't simply mean that we consume these emblems. I mean to partake of him wholly, to embrace him as your God and your sovereign, to surrender yourself back to him, receiving his life in exchange for your dead and dying soul. It's it's an exchange. And so the table spread for us in the wilderness that we call life. And God invites us to partake, but not as a ritual for gaining favor, but as a demonstration of our faith in what Jesus has done for us. The fact that we are trusting him entirely for salvation and for life until he comes reaping in the end. And we're gathered unto his storehouse as believers or left to the wine press as unbelievers. The choice is before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> the gospel is so profound and yet